This is Adoption the Long View, a podcast brought to you by Adopting.com. I'm your host, Lori Holden, author of The Open-Hearted Way to Open Adoption. Join me as we take a closer look at what happens after you adopt your child and begin parenting them. Your adoption journey isn't over then, it's just beginning. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of thought-provoking and influential guests as we help you make the most of your adoption journey. Like any trip worth taking, there will be ups and downs and challenges. Here's what you're going to wish you'd known from the start. Ready? Let's go. Thinking back, or or feeling back really, to the days when I first started on the adoption path, I remember how difficult it was to get my head around what an expectant mother would be going through in order for me to become a mother. At a time when I was experiencing fertility famine, it was so tough for me to imagine another woman's fertility abundance. I just really struggled to even go there. But that was part of the work that I had to do in order to prepare my own heart to be a mother face my own grief around infertility, and imagine the space an expectant mother would be entering into if she chose adoption and if she chose to place her baby with me. These two things would help me do two more things. One, clear away grief so that my future baby would not come into a shrouded heart and a shrouded home. And two, help me empathize and connect with the woman I would owe my motherhood to. Today's interview will help you do those two things as well. My guest is Candace Cahill, a mother who has a tale to tell about how placing her son and losing him twice led her to better understand mothering in surprising ways. I think it will do the same for you. Candace Cahill placed her son Michael as an infant in 1990 in Minnesota. Their semi-open adoption closed when he was eight, but contact was reestablished at 18. Then, after navigating the complexities of reunion for five years and only one single face-to-face meeting, Michael died in his sleep of natural causes. Shocked and devastated at losing him a second time, Candace attended the funeral, where she encountered unexpected compassion from Michael's family. They proudly introduced her as Michael's birth mother, which contradicted years of self-sabotaging internal messages that Candace had carried. Their acceptance, along with her husband's encouragement, launched Candace on her path to healing. Candace has written a memoir about this experience, and I've had the absolute pleasure of reading an advanced copy. It reveals how child loss, no matter how suffered, is a universal pain. While she believes that there can be beauty in adoption, we must first acknowledge that it begins with the trauma of severing a child from their mother. Candace is an artist, a silversmith, musician, storyteller, and writer living in Denali, Alaska, Candace, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's so good to be here and talking with you. I'm so excited to dig into your story. You became an expectant mom and then a birth mom in 1990. And I I want to talk real quick about the difference that um, until papers, relinquishment papers are signed, a woman is an expectant mom or just a plain old mom. It's the signing of the papers that turns her into a birth mom and to call her a birth mom prematurely is considered coercive. So just get that out of the way. You were an expectant mom and a birth mom. Tell us about entering into that experience. Uh, And first of all, I very much appreciate that you reflect on the terminology and how important it is, because I totally agree that it is coercive. Um, And I, it was used with me in the counseling that I ended up happening. Um, 
when I got pregnant though, I just figured that I was going to be a mom, like all the other young women in my life. Um, my sister, cousins, friends, um, even if they didn't have a boyfriend or a husband, it was just, that's what happened where I grew up in central Minnesota. Um, but then the baby's father, who I'd really only known for a few months, um, he convinced me to go to counseling with him. And I thought it was like to help become parents together. But in fact, it was adoption counseling. So I was a little blindsided. Um, we broke up shortly after that, but I ended up continuing to go to counseling with that same counselor. Um, she ended up filling a mother role for me. And my, I had a very difficult uh, relationship with my mother at the time. But the counseling that they did was uh, uses, used a decision-making packet. It was like a workbook. And the workbook helped me go through the budgeting and, you know, stressors of having a baby, et cetera. But a big part of it was going into a deep dive of family history and how that impacts who you are and how you could be a parent. Well, I had a lot of history of sexual abuse, drug addiction, alcoholism. And, and in the end, what it did, the, the counseling just ended up pointing out to me that I was ill-equipped, unprepared, and not parent material. And, and how old were you at this time? I was, uh, I had, I was 20. I had just turned 20. And, um, and then once I kind of figured that out and, and it was actually a very devastating place to be where you don't feel like you can do what you're supposed to do, which is be a mom. Right. Um, but kind of two things happened around the same time. I got a phone call from the father, my ex-boyfriend, the father of the baby, from his mother, who basically said she would fight me for custody if I tried to keep the baby. Um, and, and she put it in such a way, they were wealthy, they, you know, professional people. And she just was really clear. She's like, yeah, we will totally win. Now, I don't know that would have been the case, but back then I believed her. I absolutely believed her. Um, and it was the same time that I found out uh, because I started asking questions about adoption um, that I could pick the parents. I could pick the adoptive parents and because it was an early version of, of open adoption and that it made all the difference, just having a semblance of control in an uncontrollable situation. Yeah. Wow. Um... Tell us about um, how, what the handover was like. Um, he was, he was born and what, what happened from there? What, the moment you became a birth mother, was that, what was that like? So I, I made the, I made the decision to place when I was about eight months alone, um, but couldn't do the placement. You know, I had him um, in the hospital. I had ended up having a C-section, um, which was beneficial in some ways because I had some extra time in the hospital with him. We spent time together and, um, and I re-examined all of the same reasons while I was in the hospital and continued to come to the same conclusion that I was not equipped and well-prepared. Um, so he went to, into a foster home for 21 days. That was the, the limit back then. You needed to wait 21 days after birth before you could sign over your parental rights um, and, uh, so he went into foster care and then he was placed at 21 days old. And let me, let me revisit the father situation real quick. Cause you said that, um, the father's mother wanted to get custody, but if I'm understanding correctly, it wasn't because he wanted to raise the child nor did his parents. Mm -hmm. They just didn't want you to raise the child. That is correct. Okay. 
That is, so that was their lever to get you to go with the adoption route rather than the parenting route. Yes. Okay. 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 And did you meet the, you did not meet the parents because that happened later. The adoption, adopted parents. Right. I did. I got to meet them. Um, it was supposed to happen after the adoption was final. Um, so that would have been like three months later in July, but, um, my, the counselor that I had been working with knew that I was really struggling to find closure and she requested from them that we bump up that meeting. So we met, uh, when Michael was about two months old, he did not come to the meeting, but his older brother, uh, John, who was also adopted, did come to the meeting. And that was, that was really influential for me because I could see how they interacted, the three of them as a family. And it gave me a really clear indication of what their life at home would probably be like. Yeah. And what were some of your impressions about that, about um, Michael's parents? Well, so it, it's interesting in, in hindsight, um, you know, looking at it, you know, what I remember mostly is David, the adoptive father, um, whose letter is, he, I really connected with his letter when I was choosing. Um, he was really the, the kind of the impetus behind selecting them as parents. Um, but during the meeting, I was really focused on him. And I think it's, in, again, in hindsight, I think it's because it, I had a really hard time trying to recognize the other mother, I'm using air quotes, um, and I don't think she really wanted to recognize me either, you know, so it ended up being John and David being the focus from for my um, attention, and I got to see how, well, David, first of all, was very demonstrative, he had no problem crying, he had no problem showing his emotion, and that was important to me, because I grew up in a very, you know, patriarchal, misogynistic uh, family. Um, and what happened was uh, throughout the meeting, um, you know, David would weep and we would cry together and, and the little things we were talking about. And all of a sudden, John, who's four years old, he's coloring on the floor and he looks up and he goes, oh, my dad cries all the time. Those are tears of joy. <laughs> and and it was like my I, I just felt my heart lift, just just feeling like this was this was the place that uh, my son should be. You, you were on the early side of the newfangled thing called open adoption, as you said, and yours was set up as semi-open. So what was that like from the time of placing your son until the time he was 18? What were those 18 years like in a semi-open adoption? So, so that what they had planned was for there to be an update once a year on his birthday. Um, and it was uh, supposed to be like pictures and a letter until he turned 18. And I, I, I looked forward to them so much. Um, and it, it, yeah, it, it, it was like, you know, <laughs> I in some ways felt like a little kid on you know Christmas morning when I would get the, the envelope in the, in the mail, but, um, but they showed up for about the first four years on time, basically right within a week of his birthday. And then they started getting a little later and a little later. And then uh, when he turned six, nothing showed up. And I waited a little, like right around a month. And I, then I called the adoption agency and I said, can you ask them to send the, the update, you know, the promised update? And they did. Um, it came about, I think, three weeks later. And then the next two years, the same thing happened. No update showed up. Um, and 
so when I, I finally went in physically to the adoption agency and was, you know, it's like, is there something we can do to rectify the situation? And, and the woman that I had worked with was now gone. So it was somebody new who didn't know me, didn't know, you know, our situation. She's like, well, you know, there's nothing you can do. You, you've signed away your rights a long time ago and they ha- have no obligation to send you the updates. And, and I had always felt like, and I believe they may have done it purposefully, maybe not, but that they were obligated, that, that they were obligated to send me those updates. That was part of our agreement. But in fact, that is not the case. So after that, I, I basically decided that um, I sent them a letter. I decided to send them a letter and tell them that I didn't, they didn't need to send updates unless they wanted to. I wanted them, but they did not, I didn't want them to feel like it was this burden that they had to do. Because I couldn't, I couldn't set myself up to be hurt every year. Um, I, 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 so, so it, it's interesting when I look back on it now, it's like I chose to place my son for adoption. Um, and so it's my fault, quote unquote, that I lost him. Um, and the same thing is true that the updates, it was my fault that they stopped because perhaps they would have kept going had I not sent that letter. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm very protective, trying to protect myself from being hurt again is what I was trying to do. There's actually an infertility equivalent to that. And that is when you finally decide to stop trying, you get on birth control pills anyway, because you don't want to go through that. You want no chance of hope. So I do understand that. Yeah. Um, So not too long after placement, you and your husband, you, you reconnected with, um, with a high school friend who was not Michael's father and you and your husband moved to Alaska and settled there years pass. And finally you and Michael did reconnect. What was it like with him on the phone that first time? And, and then later to see him that first time, tell us about those things. Um, yeah. So yeah, I got, you know, the first letter I'd gotten in 10 years, it comes that, you know, it was two days, actually two days before his 18th birthday. And, um, you know, so I was thrilled and inside was the phone number um, for David. So I called and I, I, I talked to David first um, and, you know, <laughs> gave it some time before I was like, and is Michael there? I want to talk to him. And, you know, when he came to the phone, I, I was terrified. I was thrilled. You know, there was my, I was so filled with emotion and, you know, I hate to use a cliche, but when his voice came on the phone, it literally was like music. Um, it was uh, it just just amazing. And we didn't talk for very long because neither one of us really knew what to say or how to say it or any of those things. Um, but it, intimate strangers. Yes, yes. And um, but it, you know, it was just this incredible jumble of emotions, um, and and it, it really was a beautiful, beautiful thing to just hear his voice. Um, and then when we met, so it took a couple of years before he w- was interested and willing and wanting to meet me. And, um, and again, it was those simultaneous feelings of terror. I was terrified and I was exhilarated beyond, beyond measure. And, you know, I was terrified because I was really fearful that he would reject me, that he would blame me for giving him away, for abandoning him, because that's how I felt. I felt 
that I had abandoned him. So of course he will feel the same way that I do. Uh, when in fact, that wasn't the case, um, you know, and I remember so clearly walking up to the door. So we went to their house and uh, my husband came with me and Michael and David were standing outside their door uh, and we walked up and it was such an amazing thing because they stood next to each other, but Michael was a great big boyish version of me while also looking a lot like his adopted dad. And, and it was just uncanny. Um, and, and so, but we spent uh, almost five hours together that day. And I remember leaving with just the fullness in my heart that he was, not only was he okay, he was thriving, he was happy, he was a boisterous young man, um, ready to face the world. He had had amazing support system and yeah, just feeling really grateful. So by this time, Michael's mom was no longer in the picture. And, and just a, a short trigger warning, you found out that she had been lost to suicide when Michael was 10. So those early days of connecting with David, um, he, he didn't feel threatened by you and he didn't seem possessive of Michael. Um, what was his demeanor about you as Michael's birth mom at that meeting and and before before and after? So I I got the sense from David right away on that very first phone call um, that first of all he was and would remain the gatekeeper that he was going and not I, I I guess sometimes people I think some people think of gatekeeper as being a bad thing it can be both bad and good and I think in this sense you know, he was being the gatekeeper in the sense of protecting Michael to make sure that, um, or do his best to, that he wouldn't be hurt in all of this. Um, and I think that, you know, David, I think he always felt secure in his fatherhood with Michael and I think John too. And that I don't think there was anything that I could really do um, that would make him feel like I was taking away anything. I also believe that Jane's suicide, um, I think Jane's suicide prevented him from wanting to reach out to me. I don't know for sure because we haven't talked about it. I don't know how to talk about it. That's one area that's kind of sacred, I guess. Um, but I think it may have prevented him from reaching out. Um, and at the same time, with Jane being gone, he knew that once Michael wanted to connect with me that I could fill that mother role again in a way that was being missed. And he knew that that could be super beneficial to Michael. Does that make sense? Yeah. And of course, you can't um, fill in the gaps or the blanks of why the semi-open adoption kind of went away. But this does inform maybe why contact got sketchier and ceased there were other things going on um, that had nothing or to do with you. So I, that could have been, um, I was wondering if that was a comfort to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think in a way it was um, that, because I, I do agree. I think there was probably a lot going on. Um, and, and I certainly was as a younger woman, I, I'm trying to work on it now in my adult life, but very self-centered 
And everything revolved around me. So the fact that they weren't writing me letters was about me. It wasn't about them. I was, you know, and I've tried to learn that. And I, I do think that um, perhaps she was just struggling at the time. And yeah. And of course you would think that, um, but in part of your healing, figuring out that backstory might've helped you change those tapes that you had going on in your head. Now you mentioned something about gatekeeper. I want to go back to, and you mentioned the kind of gatekeeper, which is protective and a little cautious. What, what is the other kind of gatekeeper? So the other kind of gatekeeper is the one that can, when it comes, at least when it comes to adoption, um, that the adoptive parents gatekeeper, they can shut it down at a whim because there aren't legal um, precautions or legal uh, systems in place that protect the contact for the birth mother or birth father. Um, so, yeah, so basically, you know, we had signed a contract when I placed him for adoption and on that contract, they agreed to send updates, but it wasn't a legal binding, legally binding contract. So adoptive an adoptive parent can choose to pull that contact anytime they want because they, for any reason, for any reason, and I, and I, you know, I believe, you know, for myself, I was certainly wanting to be very, very careful that I did not do anything to prevent the communication from continuing um, once, once we had maintained it again when he turned 18. And I do want to say, I think there's such a responsibility for adoptive parents to be that former kind of gatekeeper you were talking about rather than the latter. And I'm going to refer back to um, an episode that where Rebecca Volley was my guest because her, her final parting advice was do your work people. And when you are doing your inner work, you are making sure that your gatekeeping um, motives are clear. So I just want to say that now you and your husband um, together decided not to have children after Michael. What, how did Michael factor into that decision? So, yeah, so that it was a major um a significant factor for me. I think early on after the adoption, um, there was part of me that thought, you know, someday I might have a child, you know, after, after placement, shortly after placement. But as the years went on, I came to a place where, although there were lots of other reasons to not have children, my husband and I talked about once we got married, we talked about it pretty much every year, you know, whether or not we wanted to have kids. Um, And there were a lot of various reasons. But for me, the ultimate reason was I never I always hold it held out hope that I would get to meet Michael always held out hope. I didn't I didn't really fan those flames, but it was always that little ember that kind of, you know, sat in my my heart. And I just knew there was no way that I could ever look him in the face and try to explain why one child was good enough to keep and he wasn't. Mm. Yeah. I find that such a Sophie's choice, such a difficult um, position to be in. Um, and, and the love that you have for Michael is, is so apparent in that sentiment. Not that everyone who loves their son would make that choice. I'm not saying that, but right. that um, Michael factored into your choices and um, you made them so, so mindfully. Yeah. Um, tragically, uh, Michael died of natural causes before you were able to see him a second time. 
what happened with the extended family dynamics then? And, and how has it been ever since with Michael's family, even in the absence of Michael? Um, yeah, so, so Michael died in 2013. And uh, we got word um, from David three days later. Uh, so we didn't get noti- notified right away. Um, I never, at that point, I never not once felt angry that David didn't contact me right away. Um, it, it just, it never, it, that was just not something that registered. I, I guess I was just, I mean, certainly I was dealing with my own grief, but I was just so t- horrified for his loss. You know, that's really what so focused, I was so focused on that. Um, and when, when we said we wanted to come to the funeral, he never hesitated, you know, that there was never hesitation, anything like that. It's like, of course you're going to come, um, which is hard to do from Alaska, uh, just to get out. But when we arrived, we were so embraced by the entire family. I mean, not just David, but the entire family embraced both me and my husband, Every person we met, whether it was a friend or acquaintance, a family, you know, anybody, David or whoever the family was near to us, always introduced me as Michael's mom. Just never, never a single hesitation. Um, and it was really the first time I felt like I was his mom, you know, um, and it was both, you know, it's bittersweet because it was also too late. So, but at, you know, in the months that followed, I was really lost. I just was felt really lost. Um, my husband's super supportive all the way through all of this, but I just, I just didn't know how to deal with it. So I tried to find support among parents who had lost a child and, you know, support system groups, you know, online, you know, all of those things. And, and after, you know, the initial questions with these groups, they always wanted to know more about Michael and I didn't know anything else. So it just brought up more grief because of the fact that I didn't know anything. And, you know, so then I went to birth mothers and I I found some pretty good support there, but it still wasn't quite what I needed. So, you know, it, I don't know, it was probably less than a couple months after the funeral that I was like, you know, there's one person that knows exactly how I feel and that's David. And I reached out to him and it was such an organic relationship we we started building the relationship right away sending emails back and forth totally connecting on that really personal parent level and um within by that fall he had invited tom and i to come spend a weekend with them to go through some of michael's things um and it just snowballed into something that just a very close intimate relationship and i think part of it was for me David held, David and the, the whole family held everything that was left of my son. They, he, they were my connection to him. And for David, you know, every time I came by or, or we, you know, we talked on, you know, Skype or whatever, he could see Michael in me. So we were the best connection to Michael through each other. Um, since then, um, his, the whole family has came, came up to Alaska on vacation. Um, and I spent, you know, the, they were on a cruise ship, they came in and, and we spent the whole day together. And it was, it was like having Michael sitting next to me finally here and with me. And it was, it was just really, really a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
Um, in your story, one of the, when I mentioned the surprising parts about motherhood that actually came from David and I would, I was like, he could have treated you as a person without status regarding the, regarding Michael, because legally it was true. You had no status, but he chose otherwise. And that seems super expansive to me as a person, as a father, as a parent. And even with that mother energy of, you know, just bringing you into the fold. And, um, I just really love that. What, do you have any other clues why he did that other than you, you two were the two people who really grasped it on that, on that biological level on that gut level? You know, yeah, I, I think that first of all, David, part of why I chose him was his, at least, you know, from, from what the little I knew about him, he just seemed very, capable and willing to feel, to really deeply feel. And I really connected to that. I think when Michael died, we also connected because we had both had two very significant losses. Mine just happened to both be Michael. His happened to be Michael and Jane. And, you know, there's something about our ability to be compassionate after we've gone through some of these, you know, experiences um, that I think allow us to reach out and connect at a deeper level. Um, Yeah. Vulnerability like that with, with wisdom is often rewarded in such rich ways. So you can look back and say you chose, well, if you were going to choose adoption, you chose a parent. Well, yeah. I t- and I and I really so strongly believe that and feel that mm-hmm. that I just I really was I was very lucky to have found David. Yeah. Our time always goes so fast. Um, I'm going to wrap up with our last question uh, that I'm asking for all guests this season, and that is: Having lived through adoption as a birth mother. What do you think people need to know to adopt well and to adoptive parent well? I think that um, I think adoptive parents uh, have to acknowledge and accept that adoptions begin with trauma. Um, a child, uh, a child who learns that her parents are abusive or drug addicts, will still feel abandoned and left behind. Um, an adoptee who had a picture-perfect life will still wonder what things would have been like or could have been like had they been kept. And even a willing birth mother who's been educated and counseled on the long-term effects of relinquishment and feels that placing her child for adoption is the absolute right choice, she is still going to grieve the loss of that child. Um, it doesn't mean that you know adoptive parents... Sh- they don't need to ignore the joys of adoption, um, you know, welcoming a child into their life. I mean, that's just such a, it's got to be such an amazing experience, but they need to be willing to accept that their happiness was built on another person's pain and be willing to admit and talk about it. Um, you know, that the previous guest who said, you know, do your own work. This is a part of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a simple model to think that either adoption is awesome or adoption is terrible, but the the truth probably lies in all the complexities in between and they happen at the same time. 
So that acknowledgement of um, there is loss and grief at the root of adoption doesn't mean that we can't still go on and find peace and be happy and joyous and all those and have good lives. Yes. Um, but we probably can't do those things if we don't acknowledge it because there's something there that's anything that's unacknowledged comes out sideways one way or another. If you wait long enough, Candace, is there anything else that you would like to share with us? Anything that I, I may have uh, not asked? Uh, I, I think we've covered a lot. It's, it's so hard to, to try to share such a big story in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. I really, really appreciate your sharing your story and um, being vulnerable with us and inviting us into that vulnerability. I think that that is um, a real key for adoptive parents to have the kind of relationship they want to with their child and possibly with their child's birth parents. So thank you very much for being here today. I've really enjoyed our time. Thank you so much. I I love uh, listening to all the people that you bring on. I feel like I learn new things every single podcast you put out. And so thank you for your work that you're doing. I do have a talent for bringing on fantastic, wise, insightful guests. So thank you for being one of them. A special thanks to adopting.com for producing and sponsoring this podcast. With each episode of Adoption the Long View, we bring you guests who expand your knowledge of adoptive parenting. Please subscribe, give this episode a rating, and share with others who are on the journey of adoptive parenting. Thanks to each of you for tuning in and investing in your Adoption's Long View. May you meet everything on your road ahead with confidence, capability, and compassion.